Well, good morning, and uh, good to see you this morning. We're in Galatians chapter 4, and if you've got a Bible with you or a device with a Bible on it, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Uh, we are in a series, if you're new with us, through the book of Galatians, and um, called Free. And we're discovering uh, and talking about the freedom that we have that the Bible promises us in Christ through relationship with Jesus, freedom from sin, freedom from works righteousness, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom that only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, freedom that keeps us from having to try to work hard to be good enough so that we're acceptable to God, freedom that allows us to rest in the fact of, I'll never be good enough, but Jesus is good enough, and I'm resting in him, and my affirmation, and all that I have from God, my being in the family of God, comes through what Christ has done. And that's what the book of Galatians is really all about, to sum it up, is that the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, and the ultimate setup in Galatians the ultimate kind of boiling point we're coming to this morning is it's either freedom or it's slavery. And that's the choice we have to make every day. Uh, every single person on the planet is always choosing freedom or slavery. And any type of pursuit outside of a pursuit that's grounded in relationship with Christ, the Bible's going to show us is, is actually slavery. And, but God's called us to more than that. And it seems crazy to think that given the choice that anyone would choose slavery over freedom, but the truth is many people choose slavery thinking they found freedom. In fact, they go from slavery to something maybe that is deemed unacceptable, like a behavior that's unacceptable, to slavery to something that's more acceptable. So they might go from slavery to their lust, slavery to sinful passions, and instead they kind of reorient that and they become slaves to moralistic things, even religious things. And the Bible calls us out of that as well. And what's happening is they're simply finding new ways to be idolatrous. In other words, to, to center their lives on something other than Jesus. And true freedom is only found through a life that is centered around faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. Anything other than that is some form of idolatry and is ultimately some form of slavery instead of freedom. Now, it's even crazier to think that anyone who has experienced real freedom in Christ would ever go back to slavery. It makes no sense. Yet Christians, every day, we face that temptation and we battle the temptation to go back to slavery. To go back and even though we've been set free in Christ, to functionally live like we're not, even though we are. To live like something different than we are. To let our reality and our daily life be different than what our position actually is in Christ. And instead of living like we're free, we live like we're slaves to our idols and to our sin or even to our own self-righteousness. And this is what Paul is going to attack and hopefully tear down this morning as we dive into Galatians 4 verses 8 through 20. Especially verses 8 through 11 where we really zero in this morning. This is what he's going after. And this is really the, the key point of Galatians. Uh, the verses 8 through 11 are really the, the heart of what's happening in Galatia. And really it's the, it's the big deal of what's going on in a lot of churches today. And a lot of people's lives today. Because we are tempted daily to, ex to, to forfeit the experience, practically, of freedom for slavery. And many people today need to know they can be set free... But freedom only comes through Christ. It, and they need to avoid being duped into thinking that we can simply idle swap and call that freedom because it feels like freedom. So look with me at Galatians 4. We're going to just kind of read chunk by chunk. Let's start in verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, 
how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So these four verses, this is the heart of the Galatian battle and the heart of the battle many face today. And what we see here is the danger of not only slavery to idols, but in particular, religious idols we're going to explore this morning. Instead of experiencing gospel freedom, you can say experience, as we talked about, simply changing idols, going from slavery, slavery to slavery. That's the real risk that happens in a religious culture. Because idolatry is a heart issue, and our hearts can easily deceive us into thinking we're experiencing freedom when all we're really experiencing is a new kind of slavery. So when you read this text, there are really kind of three types of people that have to heed this warning this morning. First, there's the sold-out believer, right? So if you're here this morning, you love Jesus, you got a relationship with Jesus, you know him, he knows you, you're resting in his death, burial, and resurrection to save you. You need to heed this warning this morning because you can be seduced by idols in the church just as much as you can be seduced by idols outside of the church. And people do it all the time. And the professing believer who's kind of wandering and you go, you know, I'm not sure if they really get it or not. You know, everybody knows people like that, right? Maybe you've been like that. I was there at one time. Not really sure if that person's a believer or not. That person, if you continue to wander off into idolatry and continue to run away from Christ and continue to pursue the things in the Word, you might actually prove yourself to not actually be a believer, to simply be someone who's still enslaved to something, whether it's immoral or moral or religious or irreligious. And then there's the obvious unbeliever. The person that maybe in the room this morning knows I'm not a Christian. We have to be warned not to come to church and leave with something other than Jesus. Because there's a lot of people that come to a church and they even walk an aisle and they pray a prayer and they sign a card and they get baptized and they join a church. And maybe when they came down the aisle, they wanted Jesus. But at some point, they, got, they diverted, and they didn't actually cling to Jesus. They clung to something else. They clung to some form of religious expression as opposed to Jesus. You can get religion and miss salvation. You can get churchy and miss salvation. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to be warned that you don't become one of those people that come and begin to explore Christianity, and rather than finding Christ, you find just some way to express yourself religiously, some way to become more moral, some way to better your life without actually coming into a personal relationship with Christ. Now notice, verse 8, outside of a relationship with Jesus, we're all idolaters. Formerly, when you did not know God, he tells the Galatians, before you were Christians, this is a church that was mostly Gentile, but they're struggling actually with trying to become Jews after they became Christians, which is really weird. It's, it's reverse, right? That's what the whole first three chapters has been about in, in, in part of chapter four. And he's saying, listen, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God. He tells, he tells these Gentiles, before you knew God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you were idolatrous. You were enslaved to something that was not God. It was, it was false gods. So he's reminding them of their life before Christ, before conversion. And when we think of idolatry, we tend to think of it as something other cultures and other time periods struggle with, right? We think of the, the large temple cults and uh, where animals literally being sacrificed to these statues and things of that nature. But really, worship is really about what you're trusting in, what you're looking to, what you're, what, you, what you're looking to to define you and to give you worth and to give you meaning and to give you purpose, what you give the weight of your life to. It's what you hope in. 
It's what you're dependent on to be truly happy and have meaning in life. So idolatry can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be some big statue. It can be something else. In our culture, the idols look different than they did many times back then. We think we've evolved, but all we have done is really we have found new ways and creative ways to be idolatrous. We think we're different, but the idols are still there. Idols like power and comfort and security, affirmation of others, acceptance of others, success, pleasure. These are all types of root idols in our own culture. And people use their money, their time, their energy to worship them. And it's not changed. Back in the Old Testament, idols required sacrifice, right? They worshipped an idol and they would go and they would take a bull or a ram or whatever and they would sacrifice to that animal. Instead of making a sacrifice to God, they'd make a sacrifice to the idol. And today, idols still require sacrifice. And people give their time and their energy and their money so that they can gain success. They'll take their family and lay it on the altar of power and money and success or whatever it may be. And idolatry, it requires sacrifice, and it is always slavery. He says, before Christ, you were enslaved to these things. See, idols promise freedom, but they only give enslavement. But while you're busy sacrificing to the idol, you're, you're, only, you're further enslaving yourself, and many times don't realize that you're in slavery because you're, you're ultimately a slave to whatever it is you're serving. And we can be serving idols. So when you're enslaved to the idol... You sometimes kind of get confused. You don't really necessarily know that in that moment you're living an idolatrous life. You think you're just pursuing happiness, pursuing comfort, pursuing peace, pursuing things that are normal that anybody would want to pursue. But we need to know something. Our idols can never ultimately fulfill us, so they're always going to require more sacrifice. They give us just enough comfort, just enough pleasure, just enough peace, just enough security, just enough power, to make us come back for more, but never enough to ultimately satisfy, so we always bring a new sacrifice. So it's a little bit more time. It's a little bit more money. It's a little bit more of my family's time. It's a little bit more of this. It's a little bit more of that. It's a little bit more of my character, a little bit more of my integrity. I have to push the limit a little bit more over here, and it's just a deeper and deeper sacrifice. For instance, you work and you work to make more money, but if you work because you idolize success and the affirmation of others that you get from your doing a good job, you'll, you'll also spend to look successful. You'll spend so that others affirm your lifestyle by what they see you drive or what they see you wear or where they see you live. And then what do you got to do? You got to go earn more money, right? So it's a vicious cycle. And at any moment, it can be taken away. You can get hurt and not be able to work anymore. Economic conditions can change. And that's the way it always is with idolatry. Whatever it is we're feeding, whatever the cycle is, it can always end at any moment because what it gives can't last. And notice Paul says these things by nature, they're not gods. They're not gods. They don't have any real power. These idols were not real gods. Whether the Greek gods of mythology or today's idols of power and security, they're not real gods, so they can't ultimately fulfill. Listen to what the psalmist said all the way back in the Old Testament. Many years before Paul wrote Galatians, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. The psalmist writes, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What's the point the psalmist is making? They have the appearance of life, right? They have the nose. 
He's talking about their statues and things of that nature. They have the appearance of power, but there's no real life and therefore no real power. They are really useless in the end. And he says, and those who trust in idols become like them. Lifeless, powerless, useless. A wasted life. That's harsh. Glad I didn't say it. Somebody else said it a long time ago. On the other hand, there is a very real power behind idols. And Paul's alluding to that in Galatians. Notice he says you're, you're turning back to elementary principles that you were enslaved to. He's talking about the law when he says that. So it's interesting. Been, they've been saved from like pagan worship, just false idols. And now he says you're turning back to the same elementary principles. But what they're doing is they're turning to the Mosaic law as a way to justify them. They're trying to tack on the law on top of Jesus. They're adding to salvation. It's not enough to just simply believe on Jesus. I've also got to go back now here and I've, I need to get circumcised and I need to start keeping these dietary laws and I need to do this and I need to do that. And they're trying to keep the moral law and he's saying you're turning back to elementary principles. And that's a weird statement because they're not going back and, 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 and worshiping at a temple they're turning to the Old Testament. And he says, you're turning back to these idols. Because whether it's religious or, or irreligious, whether it's got a Bible verse with it or not, if it's not rooted in faith and grace alone and Christ alone, then, then it's idolatry. He's showing us here that all false worship is idolatry and slavery. Even moralistic. Even if we put a Bible verse on it. Even if we go to church. One of the things this phrase can speak to when he says the elementary principles is things like water and fire and wind that they thought of as kind of the basic principles that made up the basic things of the earth. And many times, idols in their day were associated with things like fire and wind. You know, you think about the god of fire and they would sacrifice to the god of fire, the god of light or whatever. And these basic principles. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that many times with these idols that they were is actually there was spiritual things going on here, wicked things going on here, that there were actually demons involved in this. That while the idols were not real, the demonic work going on behind the idol is very real. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul writes, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. In other words, it's not really real. It's not, Zeus is not a real god. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He's saying there's something going on behind the idol. It pleases Satan. It pleases demons. It pleases wicked spiritual forces when we look to anything other than Jesus for affirmation, for salvation, for completion, for fulfillment. As Tim Keller notes, he says, quote, through the gods, though the gods do not exist as such, we can become subject to enslavement by evil spiritual forces if we worship anything other than Jesus Christ. See, idols have no power, but there is an evil, wicked power at work behind them. And you couple that with our own sinful flesh, our own sinful hearts, and what you get is bondage. Slavery. But Paul says, now that you've come to know God, verse 9, or rather be known by God. In other words, rather than a relationship with an idol that's not real. Galatians, you know a God who is, who is real. And a God who can know you. An idol can't know you. It can't love you. 
It can't really give to you. It can only take from you. It can only receive from you. It's lifeless and life-taking. But yet God is filled with life. And God is life-giving. And the language is here is a personal relationship. When he says no, this idea of the word no, it's a very intimate word. He's talking about a real personal relationship. You heard people say Christianity is not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's verses like this is where we get that. The language here is personal relationship. You can know God. And more importantly, the God of the universe knows you. So it's like this. If a friend tells you, hey, I've, I met, and think of the most famous person that you can think of. I don't know. Whoever that may be. So like when I, when I was uh, growing up, I was a huge Michael Jordan fan, right? So I thought he was like the most awesome athlete ever and all that, right? So I had the poster, I had the shoes, all that sort of stuff. And so if I had a friend that would have come up to me in like middle school and have been like, hey, I know Michael Jordan. I'd have been like, uh, sure, whatever, right? But if Michael Jordan, if I would have gotten to meet him and said, and he would have said, hey, I know your friend John, I'd have been like, whoa, wait a minute. Why is that? Because in my mind, Michael Jordan was way more important than my friend. He was way more, belie- he was the one that had something to risk there. He was the one who had... All the weights on his side. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's why Paul says, not just that you know God, even more so that God knows you. That's a way bigger deal, right? He's the one that's the most important. All the weights with him. That's what ultimately matters. He says you can have, that God would know you. See, Jesus said there's religiously active people that are in the world and will always be in the world. As long as this world's spinning before, until Jesus comes back. There are religiously active people in the world who claim to know God, who Jesus said will one day stand before him. And they'll talk about all the things that they did in his name. He even says they'll cast out demons in my name. They'll do many mighty works in his name. In other words, their life will have an appearance of fruit. And they'll stand before Jesus and he'll say this, Depart from me, I never knew you. Because what's most important in life is not our performance and not our religious activity. What ultimately matters is whether God knows you. And that happens through personal relationship with Jesus. That's what it all boils down to. Christianity is about relationship with God that you know Him and He knows you. Paul has shown throughout Galatians, this is only by faith in Christ. It's not through ritual. It's not through works. It's not through being obedient enough. It's not anything we can do, right? In fact, we can't be good enough. The Bible's very clear through that. There's not enough good that we can do. And whether we're a very moral person or a very immoral person, we all fall short. The Bible actually says spiritually we're dead. We're stuck in our sins, unable to bring ourselves to God. And dead is dead. Whether dead is like, you know, way out in the world, addicted to all sorts of things, doing all sorts of things that we would say, oh, wow, man, that person is clearly not a Christian. They are far gone. Or whether they're in the church every Sunday, their whole life, but yet they're enslaved to their morality and they think they can be good enough to go to heaven. You know what? Both are dead. They're both dead. And they both need life. And the Bible tells us that only comes through personal relationship with Jesus. That's what the whole first three chapters are about. There's only one gospel. And that Christ came and he died for all the spiritually dead people. The really immoral ones and the ones that think they're really good. Because we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And Christ came and he paid our sin debt. Because we deserve to be punished for our sins. 
But God loves us enough that he sent Jesus into the world who bore our sin on the cross, bore our, the punishment we deserve, died in our place on the cross, and the Bible says three days later rose from the dead, and the Bible calls every man, woman, boy, and girl to turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if we do that, we're free. Free from our sin, free from our guilt, free from our idols. We are in relationship with God through Christ. The greatest human need is to know God and be known by God. It's the greatest thing. It's to know that the one who made you and formed you knows you and loves you. And you can have that in Jesus. So Paul asked the question, how can they turn back to slavery after that? With that kind of relationship, how can you turn back? How can we? He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe these days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. He's kind of frustrated. You hear it? But notice, he's equating what's happening now with their old life. He's comparing their new interest in turning to the law with their lawless, idolatry life, idolatrous life before. The observance of days and months and years all rooted in going back to the Old Testament and trying to keep with the calendars and all that sort of stuff. See, slavery to idols can be void of the Bible or it can be masked in the Bible. It can be void of the Bible or it can be masked in the Bible. It can be irreligious or it can be religious. And adding law observance to salvation on top of Jesus was just as idolatrous at the heart as their old pagan life of sacrificing something to Zeus or any other false god. Both were simply rooted in a self-effort to save. And all idolatry is weak and worthless because it can't save. It has no power to deliver. It has no power to bring freedom. It only enslaves. Now here's the danger. Here's the danger for the Galatians and here's the danger for you and me today a couple thousand years later that one would come out of one idolatry, as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, and, come and enter a new idolatry. So here, if they turn to the law and embrace it for salvation, if they move away from the gospel, what the Bible calls that is apostasy. It's someone who looks like a believer, right? They make a profession of faith in, this, in Jesus, but then they, be, they reject that ultimately somewhere down the line, and they embrace something else. This week, the world, it seems, mourned the death of Billy Graham. I was always struck by how early in his life, uh, early in his ministry, rather, Billy Graham uh, was kind of partners on Youth for Christ uh, with a guy by the name of Charles Templeton. He was a fellow evangelist. But after Youth for Christ, Charles Templeton went to pursue higher education at Princeton. Billy Graham continued to pursue his evangelism. And ultimately, Templeton decided, you know, the Bible... It can't really be trusted. You know, the Bible, it might not really be true. You know, the Bible, and he... And by the end of his life, he had completely rejected Jesus and completely walked away from him and denied that Jesus Christ is even Lord or Savior or that there is even a God or that we can know who that God is. That's a picture of what the Bible calls apostasy. It's somebody that at one point was telling people about Jesus and to trust him, calling them to faith, and at another point walks away and said, did he lose his salvation? No, he just never had it. That's the danger. That's the danger. On the other hand, you've got Billy Graham, whose most famous phrase that he's known for throughout his ministry is this, the Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. But we have to be warned this morning that there is a danger that we will get away from what the Bible says and that we'll begin to pursue other things and other idols. That we would go from the idolatry to the things of the world to maybe a new religious idolatry. 
will become religious but not become Christian. There's a way to look like we came to Christ but really simply be more moral. Still trying to save ourselves. You know, Jesus told the Pharisees that they would travel around the world looking for a convert. And then when they found one, they'd make him twice as much a son of hell as he was before. That's a strong statement. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, he meant was the Pharisees that he was talking to were trusting in their self-righteous works to save them. They thought they were good enough to save themselves. They, they thought what they could do was enough. They were trusting in themselves for salvation. And so when they went and converted someone to their way of thinking, they converted them to the same thing, to being this person who in some way thinks that they don't really ultimately need saving, don't ultimately really need a savior, don't ultimately really need Jesus. And he says, now they're twice as much a son of hell. Why? Because there is something blinding about religion with separated from Christ. Uh, about somehow becoming more moral and more religious without becoming actually a Christian. A moral master is more blinding than an immoral master many times because it reinforces our pride. Makes us think, hey, man, man, I am pretty good. I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. That's how the Pharisees were, right? We're better than these sinners over here that Jesus likes to eat with. We're better than these people over here. This reinforcing all they were doing was just driving themselves deeper into their slavery. So what does Paul do? He reminds them of the truth, the truth that there is a God you can know and knows you, the truth of a relationship, not keeping the rules in order to gain a standing, but rather being given a standing because of a relationship. And we must constantly remind ourselves of the importance of the relational nature of Christianity because our hearts are prone to wander like the old hymn. So we have to constantly call ourselves back to the fact that we know God, He knows us, that He loves us, and that is rooted in a personal relationship with Christ. Now in the next section, Paul goes into a heart pleading with them. He's just kind of pouring out his heart for them. It's a very personal section. But what we see here is a glimpse into how Paul ministered to these people, both when he initially had ministered to them and even now. How in the world did he minister to these people who were slaves to idols on the one hand before they came to Christ and now seem to be looking back at a new idol now that they have supposed to have come to Christ. Look at verses 12 through 20. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I, I have be also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. In other words, he was sick. Verse 14, And though my condition was a trial to you, it was hard, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. It's Christ Jesus. He's saying, man, you, you loved me. We had a good thing going. He says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Many believe that Paul had an eye condition. And that's what he's speaking to there. That this illness uh, that he came to them in was a condition of the eyes. And he's saying, man, you loved me so much, you would have given me your eyes if you could. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, the false teachers, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. He's perplexed. He's, he's confused. What we see here is Paul's fight for gospel freedom for the Galatians. And from this, I think we can discover how we can best fight for gospel freedom. To make sure, to come out of idolatry, but also to remain free from idolatry. It's the, the need to fight for gospel freedom. And it's something as a church that we have to fight for, that we are a, a ministry that proclaims that and that lives that. And individually as believers, we have to fight for our freedom every day to, remain, to make sure that we don't get lured away 
into something that wants to enslave us? Three things, three quick takeaways. We see here, we need living examples. Paul says, become as I am, for I became as you are. Become as I am. What is Paul saying? Follow me as I follow Christ. That's something he used to say. He said, I'm free. I want you to experience the joy and the freedom that I have. I want you to have what I have, right? He lived in such a way that he could actually look at them and say, become like me. Listen, we need that and people need that. People in the world need to see Christians who really live the Christian life and really understand and experience gospel freedom and that live that out before them. And, and, and actually Christians who are willing to become as they are. That doesn't mean he adopted their sinful practices. His point is, listen, I lived among you. When you, when you had a barbecue, I ate some barbecue. Even though I come out of Judaism and I wasn't supposed to have barbecue, but in Christ I can have barbecue now. And while I might not would do that with my Jewish friends because it might offend them, it doesn't offend you, so I'll have that with you. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. I was willing to become like you so that I might win you, so that I might reach you. And he caused them to become like him. Believers and unbelievers alike need to be able to see Christianity. See it lived out. Unbelievers need believers that will be like them and at the same time radically different from them. To face the same issues and problems and joys and to face them in the light of Christ. And to see freedom in Christ expressed before them. Yesterday I was walking behind our place and some property back behind our place. And um, there's all these, you know, got the big oak trees with the hanging moss and everything's just kind of, kind of still kind of dreary and dead. And um, certain things are still kind of that way and just kind of gray because of all the, the hanging um, Spanish moss and the trees and stuff. So everything's just kind of gray. And then there's these two trees, one that is bright yellow and one that is like bright purple that are just like, I mean, they just like stand out like high definition photos in a black and white picture. And as I was walking back there, I was like, man, what a vivid picture of what it's supposed to be like to be a Christian in the world. To be out among and in the world, but not of the world. To be radically different. In some way to be the same, but in some way to be radically different. And that's what Paul said, I did. I became like you. Now I want you to become like me. You've seen it. I want you to live it. He's inviting them. And at Believer, we each have a responsibility to live our life in community and on mission so that inside the church family, we see Christianity lived out and it spurs us on. And to live out in the world on mission that way so that unbelievers can see us as salt and light. I've never met a Christian faithful living, living on mission who wasn't faithful to the gathering of the community of faith. Never met one. So we need, we need living examples. We also need divine truth. He says... What's changed in our relationship? All that I can think that I've done is shared the truth with you. And what Paul is hinting at here is I've been willing to share the truth with you even though I, it offended you, even though it pushed you away. These false teachers, they're not actually telling you the truth. They're buttering you up, he said. They lavish praise on you. But not for a good reason, only to enslave you to their false teaching. But Paul says, I was willing to speak the truth. They simply want to... They simply want to sugarcoat everything for you and tell you how great you are to, 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 to hook you. Listen, when you go to the doctor with a broke leg, do you want a doctor that'll look at you and say, it ain't broke? Hey, it's okay. It's going to be okay. We're just going to, you know, we're going to do this and, we're gonna, and you're going to be fine. Just kind of walk on the other side a little bit. You know, it's going to be okay. Wouldn't want to hurt your feelings or, or get you down or get you depressed to make you think you've got a broke leg. No. You wouldn't go back to that doctor. He's not helping you. You want a doctor that's like, 
in a loving way, going to tell you, yeah, it's broke, sorry, and it's going to mean a cast, and it's going to mean you're going to be not super mobile for the next eight weeks, and, it's going to, and he's going to give you all the uh news because you need the uh news because the only way the, only way the leg is going to get healed properly. Paul's saying, I'm the kind of doctor that's willing to tell you the truth because people need truth. If we're going to come to faith or grow in our faith, we've got to be continually confronted with the truth of God's word. That is what God uses to chip away at the idols in our hearts and in our lives. It is the sword of the Spirit, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God and wields it in our hearts and in our lives to remove things that need to be removed and encourage things to come in that need to come in. But we've got to be willing to be confronted with the truth and not push away when we're confronted with the truth. Be willing to be offended by the truth. And thirdly, we not only need divine truth, we not only need living examples, we need a Christ focus. Paul's goal was to see them, he says, made like Jesus. He says, I'm like a mother in labor, willing to suffer and go through pain for the end result of seeing you made like Christ. Christ formed in you, he says. That's the end game of Christianity, is that Christ be formed in us. See, in verse 26 of chapter 3, he begins this whole little section about how we're in Christ. How through faith in Christ, we have this new reality and this new family and all this stuff. And now he's talking about seeing Christ formed in us. And this walking with Jesus in personal relationship and being made more and more like him by the Holy Spirit. That's the picture here. And the final product will not, will not be until we're with Christ in heaven. But we're made more and more like him. He's being formed in us. He's being formed in us. We're being sanctified. We're being made more and more like Christ until the ultimate reality happens we're made like him. Not that we're like little gods. That's like another religion, okay? Not Christianity. But like we're, we're sin, but we'll be made sinless. We won't even be tempted to sin. We'll be from the presence of sin. We'll be glorified with Christ, with bodies that don't get sick and that don't sin and don't get tempted to sin and in a sinless place. That, that's the end game, right? That Christ is formed in us. And he's telling them, listen, Galatia, you will be perfected, but not by the law. Only by trusting Christ until the end. Every believer will be perfected. Every believer will be completed, but not by moving on from the gospel, not by moving away from Jesus, but only by remaining steadfast in Christ. That is, that is how. And true faith, true faith in Christ does that. It remains rooted in Christ until the end. And when we feel ourselves tempted away, the Spirit convicts us and calls us back, and we come back to Christ. Jesus is the beginning, and Jesus is the end of salvation. He is the means and He is the goal. We are rescued by Him, redeemed by Him, and for Him, and ultimately to be made like Him. Don't settle for a works righteousness or self-righteousness that's going to leave you short. Don't look away from Christ and go looking for meaning or worth and wait to your life from the idols of the world or from your past. The idols of your heart that you've been delivered from. Calling them to a focus on Christ, be made like Christ. And church family, our focus is to see people made like Christ. Not like us. Yes, like us in the sense of we want them to experience what we've experienced in Christ. But they don't have to have all of our tastes and all of our preferences. We're not trying to create some weird subculture. Let's call it a cult. Okay? Dress like this. Talk like this. Walk like this. Live exactly like this. And all these other little, you know, mystic little rituals. We attach on to that. No, our focus has to be become like Christ. 
Become like me in the ways that I have become like Christ. And if you're here today and you have never truly believed, if you've never truly been delivered from sin, from death, from hell, man, keep keep the focus on Christ. It is Christ, not morality or religious ritual or church attendance. It is Christ and only Christ who can and will save you. The focus has to be Christ. So where are you at this morning? Have you been set free from sin, from idols, from guilt, from shame? If so, is your focus on Jesus this morning? Are you walking in truth, living in community? Maybe this morning you need real freedom from sin and shame and guilt and from lifeless, dead religion. If not, know this. If you don't have that, know this. You can be set free from that, from sin, from idolatry, from guilt, from shame, and be given real freedom in Christ today, freedom to know and obey God, to love God, to love others, not because you're trying to perform, but because you just, you're different, you're changed, and you want to love God. In church family, we need to be the kind of church that offers people living examples of those that have been set free, who declares to people divine truth, even if it pushes them away, because ultimately we're trying to bring them in. And it's willing to keep the focus on Christ and not get sidetracked with so many other things. Let's pray.